welcome to the All Things AFib podcast. This is your host, Dr. Armin Kionkui, and I am a practicing cardiothoracic surgeon who specializes in the treatment of atrial fibrillation. Throughout my career, I've been blessed to work side by side with some of the brightest minds in atrial fibrillation treatment, diagnosis, and prevention. And the whole purpose of this podcast is to share those insights with you by giving you a front row seat to intimate conversations with AFib experts from around the world. So turn up the volume, sit back, relax, and enjoy the conversations. Thanks for listening. All right. Well, in this episode, we kind of take on a different animal, if you will. We start the first about 15 minutes of our conversation, me and Ali Syed, who is a medical student at the Medical College of Wisconsin. And we talk about something he tweeted about, which was the first, uh, appears first ever, uh, robotic enhanced convergent plus procedure. So we get into the lesion set that was performed robotically, as well as the management of the left atrial appendage. And he kind of teases us with some possible uh, outcomes in manuscript uh, preform that might be coming out soon. So we're all looking forward to that. So Again, about the first 15 minutes is uh, true to form. We talk about atrial fibrillation. But to be honest with you, I think the last 45 minutes or so is really what moves me in this conversation, at least within this conversation. Um, we talk about the recent STS outgoing presidential address by Dr. Calhoun. And if you're not interested in listening to our perspectives on this, I completely understand as this is not typical AFib content, but I urge you to take a listen all the way through in so much that we just provide our perspectives as two people of color, two people who are often in the minority, who uh, just provide some insight, I hope, on what the, that slide, the, the notorious slide that everyone is, is talking about. Um, what it meant to us and how we uh, interpreted that uh, set of statements and kind of what it means to us within the larger context of providing healthcare. So I do hope you uh, stay tuned for the entire podcast. It was a, a pleasure to speak with Ali and um, I hope you enjoy it. Please remember that the opinions expressed by Ali and I are completely independent of our associated institutions. These are our personal opinions on the STS presidential address. All right. Welcome back, everyone, to another episode of the All Things AFib podcast. This is your host, Dr. Armin Kionkui. Today's episode is going to be a little on track, a little off track. We're going to cover some really important topics, or I should say one kind of singular topic that has been on the top of mind for a lot of people in these last few weeks. Um, but my guest today is a very brave, very courageous medical student by the name of Ali Syed. He's a second year medical student at the Medical College of Wisconsin. And I'm not going to describe too much about him because I would love to hear his story from him and to share with you all the listeners. Um, so Ali, welcome to the program. Hey, thank you so much. It's very nice to be here today. Um, a little bit about me. I was born and raised in the Bay Area, went to college at UC San Diego, did my master's there. And uh, now I'm here at the medical college and uh, working hard. 
All right. Good, good. Well, med school is always a great time, um, but let's kind of take a step back. So I think one thing that's important for the listeners uh, to know about, at least to try to create the appropriate context for the content that we're going to discuss is um, our backgrounds. So I'll kind of start off. So I'm an Iranian American. I was born in Tehran, Iran, left when I was a year old um, and basically raised here in the States. Also raised in San Diego, grew up in Pacific Beach, um, public school kid, went to UCLA, went to the University of Minnesota, University of Vermont, University of Virginia, and kind of has been through the entire public health system, or I should say education system. And then um, trained at Cedars, and here I am a, a cardiac surgeon with specialty in arrhythmia. But important to that, aside from all the training, is that I am an Iranian-American. Um, very obviously, people can see that when I walk out on the streets, when I'm at meetings, when I'm talking with friends and colleagues. Um, so tell us a little bit about your ethnic background and... Um, and that about you so um i'm a pakistani american and um i was born here in the bay area fremont um again i went through the public school system just like you so i think that's a great topic we um align on um and just growing up uh, i didn't really notice it so much in the bay area but um when i moved to different areas i started noticing that you know the diversity was a little less so it kind of felt like I stood out a little more and, um, yeah. Okay. All right. Fair enough. Um, so let's, so for the listener, the reason why we kind of revealed that component of ourselves about our personal lives is because right after we talk about some convergent stuff, we want to jump into the STS, uh, talk by former president, Dr. Calhoun, so, um, as an entry into this podcast, let's at least tell people about some of the exciting AFib work that's happening at the Medical College of Wisconsin, and then we'll talk about the STS presidential address. So, you tweeted the other day something pretty darn cool. Um, you want to share that with us? Um, so, I tweeted that uh, we had you know an Italian team come and visit us at the Medical College of Wisconsin. And they came to learn the convergent, the robotic enhanced convergent plus procedure. And, um, you know, from what I understand, we're the first in the world to do it robotically. And uh, we're actually getting, you know, more extensive adhesion sets than were done previously, building off of the convergent plus that uh, you published on. And um, it's really, it's really interesting because we're seeing some really good results, some really promising results. Uh, those are to come out soon. But uh, what we are seeing is that, you know, robotically, we're able to get people home on day one. Um, our average length of stay is a day. Um, and most of our patients are like longstanding, persistent, or even longer than that, AFib, where they have on average like five to five to seven or eight years of being an AFib. And they're just not healthy enough to undergo a sternotomy or to undergo, you know, cardio cardiopulmonary bypass. And because of that, we're offering them this alternative approach, which, uh, really happy to report works. All right. Very cool. And again, just to remind the listener, you're listening to a second year medical student. So, um, Ali sounds pretty darn versed 
in in research and outcomes in uh, patient care already. So that's fantastic. Um, can you share with us? Because I, I wasn't able to to find a video online. Can you share with us what the robotic convergent plus looks like at the Medical College of Wisconsin? Kind of walk us through that operation. Sure. Um, so uh, obviously the patients brought back to the operating room. Um, they go through um, single lung ventilation. Then on the left side, they get uh, four ports placed, um, kind of in a hockey stick formation. Uh, the first three are more mid-axillary, and then the next one comes up a little bit closer to mid-clavicular. Uh, the fourth one comes up a little bit closer to mid-clavicular. And then, um, you know, the first one, we place the camera. We figure out uh, whether it's safe to proceed. And then uh, we go from there. In terms of how the procedure is done, you identify the vagus nerve on the pericardium. You incise the pericardium right beneath it. And uh, you just want to identify structures at the very beginning, make sure that uh, everything looks good. From there, um, no specific order, really. But what happens in terms of the ablation is... We like to start with a roof line, and that's um, just above both sets of pulmonary veins. Then we do... Um, so I'm gonna, the, sorry, Ali, I'm going to interrupt you there uh, really quick because I, I want to make sure the listener understands what instrumentation we're using and what devices. So when you say the ablation, you're using the Episense catheter, the unipolar standard kind of convergent catheter, if you will, the same one that's used in the trial. Um, and you're opposing that to the tissue using the robotic instrumentation. Is that correct? I just want to clarify for the listener. Yeah, yeah, yeah. So um, okay. we use the, the same catheter everyone else is using, and we're using the robotic instrumentation um, to place that on the tissue. Okay. Um, and so I'll continue with the lesion set here. So we do the roof line first, then we go semi, uh, then we go circumferentially around the left set of pulmonary veins. Okay. We then do a floor line um at this point then we go to the most distal set of lesions that we're doing which is going to be the medial aspect of uh, the right pulmonary veins so we do those semi-circumferentially we don't go completely circumferentially on those because our ep colleagues have told us multiple times that um doing the distal end of the right pulmonary veins is actually really easy for them sure. so they wouldn't want us to get any surgical trouble um by going that far um, additionally, we then, um, do the ligament of Marshall. We, uh, isolate, uh, the left atrial appendage and, uh, we clip it using the atrial clip, um, usually a V or a, a hoop shaped clip. And then uh, we do Coumadin's Ridge, which is just from the base of the left atrial appendage all the way down to the superior aspect of the left pulmonary veins. And um, last but not least, um, usually it's finished off with the subxiphoid lesion, uh, subxiphoid incision that people make. But um, we do it one of two ways: we either stick the the same catheter in from the left sided ports that we've already created, and we ablate the posterior wall of the atrium, um, going uh, kind of horizontally and vertically a little bit mixed, but uh, we get the entire posterior wall that way. Or what we're also doing now, so in some cases, uh, is we're using a thoracoscopic port in the subxiphoid area just to have a much more minimally invasive cut down right there and to have um, easier access, easier placement. 
and hopefully um, decrease the risk of infection that you see uh, post-operatively. And then we're, you know, ablating the posterior wall that way too. Um, after that, you know, the patient's decannulated um, or the, the deep, like the robot is pulled away from the patient and, uh, you know, anesthesia kind of finishes up there and uh, the patient's brought into the, the post operative ICU, or I don't even think they go to the ICU. They go straight to the floor actually. And um, from there, we just watch them. Chest tube comes out either later that day or the next morning and uh, they go home the next day. Um, and then they follow up with us in two weeks and then at three months and six months. And then we send them over to electrophysiology for the rest of the follow-up where they can make better determination um, whether or not they want to continue their antiarrhythmics and anticoagulation drugs. Great. That's a fantastic description. A couple things that I just want to emphasize, you know, I really like the sequence by which you guys are conducting this operation. You know, um, the trial data, the converge IDE trial, as you know, was a single stage procedure where the epicardial portion was performed first subxiphoid, And then the endocardial portion was obviously performed percutaneously. The clip or managing the left atrial appendage was omitted from that trial. That wasn't part of the trial, but um, most people who are now performing some sort of hybrid ablation, whether it's the convergent like approach or convergent plus or bilateral VATS, most of us are occluding the left atrial appendage. We think from industry data, it's probably somewhere around 80%. And I think early on, there was this debate of what should you do first? Should you do the, the epicardial ablation first and then clip the appendage or should you do the, uh, the clipping of the appendage first, followed by the ablation. It seems that the better workflow option is exactly like you guys are doing at the at the Medical College of Wisconsin, whereby um, the TEE is placed, the appendage is evaluated, the appendage is clipped, the TEE is removed, the temperature probe is placed back in, and then you can move forward with your ablation. I think it offers kind of two advantages. One, the workflow we just talked about, you don't need to reinsert the TEE or the esophageal probe, um, or the echo probe. And then two, it does allow you the opportunity to cardiovert the patient uh, once you're done with your ablation because the appendage has already been managed. So that's always nice in order to allow for um, some exit testing. So some pace capture. So very cool. One thing I wasn't aware of, which really kind of caught my ear was uh, using a thoracoscope port to insert the epicense subxiphoid. That's a pretty yeah. cool approach. So um, I think in one of the convergent, like the very standard, not the robotic enhanced, but just one of the, the standard convergence that we did, um, God knows when, I think like 2018 or 2019, I've been looking through the data and we noticed that there was um, a post-op infection of just the subxiphoid like area. And uh, it didn't require any serious things, just antibiotics. Um, the patient came back at the two-week checkpoint and they were kind of like, this doesn't look good and it still hurts. And uh, when we noticed that, we were like, potentially we could swap to the perizyphoid um, thoracoscopic port mm -hmm. instead and I think that was just the genius of Dr. Scanna and Dr. Gaspari um, for the surgeons that do the operation, just thinking it through and being like, oh, this is a way we could potentially, you know, remove the chance of that complication happening. Right. Yeah, no, that's awesome.
Do you want to, um, I was going to ask you to mention the team. Do you want to mention the team by name, um, kind of first name, last name, everyone involved in the hybrid team at the medical college? Yeah. So, um, obviously we have the surgeons, Dr. Stefano Skinner, MD, PhD, and then we have Dr. Mario Gaspari, MD. Um, we have, uh, me, Ali Syed. We have, uh, another medical student, Jacob Lindemann. We have our surgical resident, Ben, Dr. Ben Seidler, MD. Um, and then we have uh, a phenomenal nurse practitioner, Trisha Wilcox. She's without her, none of this stuff would get done. Sounds, sounds then, pretty right. Sounds common. <laughs> and then um, we also have a nurse who kind of manages the database, makes sure that the follow-up is done. And her name's Annie kind of blanking on her last name right no now. problem no problem very cool and not to put you on the spot but do you know of the electrophysiologist that your team is working with oh yeah i i 100 percent apologize for not mentioning them earlier <laughs> <laughs> we're working with dr james ogiri he's one of the electrophysiologists we work with and then dr marcy berger who's actually the the chair of endocrinology or the chief of endocrine or electrophysiology right at um at mcw and then um sporadically we'll work with the rest of them but those are the two that we work mainly with very cool and do you know how about how many of these robotic enhanced um, procedures you've performed now um we're approaching close to the 70 75 mark okay um but we've been picking up quite a bit in the last year or so uh, before that, I think we had like one case in like 2019, a few cases in 2020 and then 2021 and 2022 is when we started ramping up. And, um, I think electrophysiology started buying into it more because they were like, this is actually working. It's not, you know, super dangerous and patients are doing well and they're not complaining about it. So, um, that's when I think we started getting more referrals and we started getting, um, a better sense of, you know, how we could, uh, create a workflow for this. Right. Absolutely. Well, that's fantastic. I mean, to be at 70, 75 cases in a matter of uh, three years, basically is, is quite the growth in a program. And that would really put you at one of the busiest hybrid programs in the country. So big congrats to everyone on the team. Obviously it's a um, collaborative process that requires a lot of investment on both sides, um, not only technically from the electrophysiologists and the surgeons, but like you said, folks like your nurse practitioners are critical to the process because navigating the patients through a multi-procedure approach is not easy. There's um, many opportunities for patients to become disengaged and it does require a complement of team members to keep that patient involved and um, trusting the system. Um, the one last thing I just want to mention, just uh, for completeness sake, at MCW, is it a two-stage procedure, two different hospitalizations, or is it one hospitalization, two procedures? So right now we're doing it in a two-staged manner, and um, I think it works a little better that way because uh, there was recently a meta-analysis or a grouping of all the convergent data published. And, uh, you know, although this isn't, you know, the gold standard randomized controlled trial, it, it did show that um, patients that are done in the two-staged manner do have a better set of outcomes when it comes to freedom from AFib. Um, but, you know, 
there are a lot of people that do it in the one staged approach, uh, as I'm sure you're well aware, and they do really well too. So um, again, I would love to see like a randomized control trial just saying, you know, it's better one way or the other. Yeah, no, absolutely. And I think ultimately, you know, it, it may become more of a um, logistic issue. You know, Dr. Mark Lemaire, who's in, um, who's in Belgium, and who has a one of kind of the pioneer programs of hybrid, you know, they've always done a single hospitalization two-stage approach. They actually do it in the EP lab, which is phenomenal. And Mark and his EPs are amazing. Um, but he wrote a really nice uh, paper called the seven pillars of hybrid ablation, where he kind of talks about the fact that, you know, probably ultimately um, it's going to be decided by the hospital, meaning kind of what is the workflow? What, are, how many labs do you have available? How many ORs do you have available? What is the ability to kind of, uh, perform these procedures in a fluid, efficient manner without, you know, wasting a lot of time and resources. So, um, yeah, it'll, it'll be interesting if that, uh, trials ever set up, I think it probably have to be single institutional because it's gonna it's gonna be hard to uh to find multi-institutional comparisons but who knows um but i think more importantly like you had stated earlier there's growth in the area people are adapting people are working together and patients are better for it so that's fantastic um so again congratulations and uh for the listener um we're gonna jump from that topic now to something that, you know, I highlighted or hinted at earlier, and that is the uh, 2023 STS outgoing presidential address that was given in San Diego just, gosh, just a few weeks ago. And um, what I want to start with is I don't know Dr. Calhoun personally. I've had one dinner with him. We had some friendly conversation, but I don't think he would know me from anything. Um, and so I don't want this to be a conversation about Dr. Calhoun. I don't want this to be a conversation about him as a character, as a human being, because I don't know him. And so, um, what I would love to do is one, um, get Ali's perspective to share our joint kind of perspectives. And we haven't had this dialogue before, so I'm really excited to see kind of where it goes. And three, talk about this editorial that you so bravely sent in to the annals and was accepted and is in current proof. Um, so, Ali, um, why don't we start with the slide, if you will, hashtag the slide that got so much attention, not initially, but since the subsequent days. And you kind of talked about this on Twitter. Do you want to maybe start the conversation about what your, your personal uh, response was to the talk and then kind of the reveal over the next few days? So um, as, as a medical student, um, I wasn't presenting at the STS. So uh, my department wouldn't cover, you know, me flying out, which is a hundred percent reasonable. So um, I decided I would just attend it virtually. And the STS does this amazing thing where if you're a medical student or resident, I believe it's completely free to watch it all virtually. And um, I was just watching some of the sessions that uh, I was you know, going to enjoy. And then I remember 
Sunday morning, I was like, why don't I, why don't I also watch the presidential address? And as a student, and I think I've realized this after writing my editorial and then talking to some of my, um, the surgeons, uh, as a student, you really grasp and hold on to each word that is said from people you idolize. Um, obviously, the president of the STS being something that every aspiring cardiothoracic surgeon idolizes. Um, you really hold on to each word. You try and you know uh, emulate the, their behavior, try and try and model all their qualities and characteristics. So when I was listening to the speech, I was making sure I was like hearing things and I was like trying to, you know, make mental notes like, okay, this is, you know, something he said. And I just remember like when he's like, he clicked the next slide and it was like seeing the slide. I like, you know, your eyes read faster than someone can speak. So I started reading the slide and uh, I was just, I was a little baffled initially. And I was like, maybe I read this wrong. And like, I read it again. And then like, for those few seconds, I was just not like, I was not listening to what he was saying. I was only just trying to understand what was on the slide. And then when I started hearing what he was saying, um, again, this is no dig at Dr. Calhoun whatsoever. I was just, I was surprised. I was truly and genuinely surprised because I thought that in 2023 um, that we were past all this and that I thought, you know, there was like a mutual understanding amongst uh, at least people in medicine that like diversity is to our benefit. Like our patients do significantly better when they see someone that they can relate with, when they see someone that um, understands them and uh, just just seeing the slide and like just starting to hear what he was saying, it really like it almost made my head spin in a sense because I was just so again as someone that idolized like I still idolize um, cardiothoracic surgery and like all the surgeons that do it, but it was just really um, a shock to me, quite truly and honestly. And I remember thinking in that immediate moment, I was like, oh gosh, like. Like I almost felt bad for him because I was like, people are going to start walking out like the like the the TV moment of like throwing rotten tomatoes. I was like, someone's going to throw a tomato or something, um, and like nothing. Yeah. And I opened Twitter and, I, and like I expected to see something and I didn't. But uh, I'll, I'll let you. No, I just here. wanted for those listeners who haven't um, read the slide or seen the slide or were able to uh, view him virtually or in person, um, because now it's a bit of rare material. You really can't find uh, what we're talking about. So what I wanted to do before we talk anymore is give the listener um, the text of the slide. So I'm going to just read it just to put it out there, but then I'd love to hear the rest of how you think this expressed itself. And then what I would love to do is go through it kind of line by line um, to get your impression, and then we can have a dialogue about it. So for those who are not there, uh, so the slide is, is entitled Virtuous Ideals, and it's a one, two, three, four, five, six bullet points. And so I'm just going to read these. Um, so bullet point one, affirmative action is not equal opportunity. Bullet point two, inclusion, not the same as diversity. 
Number three, search for the best candidate. Use all hurdles and challenges overcome. Number four, defining people by color, gender, religion only tends to ingrain bias and discrimination. Number five, diversity is occurring rapidly. Number six, best metric is simply whether someone does good. Okay, so you see this slide. You told us your immediate reaction. So walk us through kind of how this expressed itself over the next few days to you. Unpack this for us. Right. Um, so the slide itself, um, I, I don't pretend to be someone that is completely versed in the understanding and like the intricate understanding of like human social dynamics and like how race and ethnicity all plays into this. But um, I, I can, however, speak to like my understanding and what um, I saw unfold in the next couple of days. Um, I mean, my, my understanding is, you know, as I said, very truly that diversity is something that we can use as a benefit um, that we can use to help make everybody feel like they're in this space and that they belong. And quite honestly, there's hurdles that occur for people that um, come from different races and ethnicities that are part of traditional minority groups that um, people that are in the majority simply just like you can't understand it until you're put in those situations like people like to talk about microaggressions and things of that nature like you don't understand them until they happen to you I mean like one very quick story is that when I was a high school student volunteering at the VA um, we were just doing like this research study where it was voluntary. If you were coming in for a blood draw, we would um, take a, a sample of your blood for the research study. And this old veteran got up and he pointed at me and my my PI, the doctor that I was working with. And he was like, y'all darn terrorists, X, Y, Z. And then he cussed us out and then security pulled him out of the hospital and they took him outside. But, you know, in the moment, I thought nothing of it. But like now, like as as I grow older, like I start to realize like those are the things that um, some people just truly don't understand. And it's by no fault of their own. It's just, you know, some things that they're just, they're simply different. And um, there's a really great TED talk. It's called Not Color Blind, but Be Color Brave. And um, I think that's a TED talk that uh, everyone should watch because it discusses how, you know, you can't just go into the world and be like, everyone, you know, everyone's the same color. Like, I don't see any differences, X, Y, Z. It talks about understanding that people do have differences and how you can embrace those and how you can use those to um, better help your understanding of that person, better help your, like, um, understanding of what they've gone through, what their challenges are, and um, how they might vary from your challenges personally. And then you wrote this editorial. Do you want to talk about that? So I, I, I imagine all of this kind of compelled you to sit down and put your thoughts on paper. Yeah. So um, the editorial, it really just came from the fact that um, when I was expecting like, you know, like tomatoes to be thrown at the stage per se. Um, and I don't mean like, you know, any harm on Dr. Calhoun at all. Sure. I mean, like metaphorically, like I expected people to be very unhappy about the speech. I didn't hear much, if at any, outrage is not even outrage, like just any feedback or anyone saying this is bad or this is you know, not something that I'm okay with. Um, I think I saw one tweet the next day or two tweets the next day where people were like, 
uh, this like we like this is not okay. Like we shouldn't be silent or complicit about it. And I, you know, I wanted I wanted the reaction to be a little bit bigger per se. Like I wanted someone to acknowledge that this is not okay. Like this is, and uh, you know, it's not like cardiothoracic surgery doesn't have um, people that that um, would like people that aren't diverse, right? There's many minorities in cardiothoracic surgery that are, you know, helping the field progress that are, you know, in really strong positions of power. And um, I just, I, I really expected someone to say something. And, uh, you know, for the first, like the, the next day, you know, I called my mentor and I was like, hey, this is absolutely nuts. Like, I don't know if you heard. And he was like, look, you can't express your outrage on Twitter. He, like, I, I wanted to just tweet like for all the diversity, equity, and inclusion that everyone talks about and everyone champions, not one person is saying something about this. Um, and my mentor, he told me, he's like, look, dude, you cannot like outlash on Twitter because that'll only cause things to look bad for you. And so he said, find a way to fix the problem. He's like, the only way you can do this in a real sense is like getting in a position of power, becoming like someone that's like an assistant program director or even becoming a surgeon first and then figuring out how you can help your understanding of diversity, equity, and inclusion to help, you know, grow your program or better the program. And um, you can't do that from, you know, my position as a second year medical student. And in that moment, I was like, maybe I can write a letter to the editor and submit it. And uh, hopefully I'll have a journal that can, you know, support me in saying that this is, this is not okay. Um, and obviously. You know, I think it was day three, 72 hours had gone by. Um, I had already submitted the editorial by this point, but 72 hours had gone by. And then finally, um, like people started, you know, showing their outrage. And I was, they were like, this is not okay. Like, this is not something we support. And then into like one by one, all like the residency training programs, all the departments, they started saying like, you know, this is not something that we can condone. Like we absolutely support and cherish diversity, equity, inclusion. and all this amazing stuff that um, I'm really glad was said. Um, but yeah, that was that was just like my acute reaction to it. And um, I think the editorial, like when I when I reread it after I found out that it was accepted, I honestly, quite frankly, I did not think that it would get accepted. I just was hoping that someone on the editorial board, you know, in a position of power, because at that point no one had said anything. I was hoping that someone on that editorial board, like in that position of power, would just say, oh, wow, I don't think we realized how much students hold on to each word that we say. Because I talked to some of the surgeons who were there in person, and they were like, look, dude, it's the presidential address. This is like in one ear, out the other kind of stuff. Like you're sitting there on your phone most of the time. While the students, we're taking each word to heart. We're trying to like emulate all those characteristics and behaviors. And I think that's why you know, at the STS presidential address, you didn't see, you know, like prominent people walking out because they were like, quite honestly, they weren't fully paying attention, if that makes sense. Like, yeah, I think it's really complex. I think, you know, the issue of presidential addresses in general, you know, I don't want to discount them, but they're kind of like graduation speeches, right? I mean, like they're kind of good at the time, but there's not a lot of weight to them. Um, and it's not to discount the massive amounts of work that go into those speeches. You know, I was at USC when Dr. Starnes gave his AATS speech and, um, 
I know I saw firsthand the massive amount of work that goes into that. And it's not to disrespect or discount those speeches at all. But um, I do think that the forum of a international meeting like STS or AETS doesn't always lend itself to an immediate response, if you will. People may have had their own personal reaction and maybe I'll give people the benefit of the doubt. They were processing maybe what was going on. And in retrospect, with the opportunity to kind of sit in your own space and think about what this slide meant and what those words meant, it could reveal a different kind of meaning to people. And so I'm not too surprised that people didn't walk out. It sounds like you weren't too surprised either. Personally, I don't even know if that's the right gesture. You know, per, I fully support the idea of dialogue and being respectful of people's um, space and opportunity to speak and have the freedom of speech. Yeah, um, and I think it, it warrants an intelligent observer to listen to freedoms of speech and then to sit down and process that and then to create a dialogue around that. Um, I, you know, I think walking out on a speech, you just, you, you don't give yourself an opportunity to take all of the content in its fullest and then process it. So personally, I'm glad people stayed. I'm glad people listened and then processed it and then kind of provided a, an opportunity for a dialogue. So let's get into the slide kind of one by one, because I'd love to get your kind of detailed interpretation. And again, you know, Ali and I are here giving our personal interpretation of this as two people of color who've been through the medical education system at varying levels um, and who've been in the workforce. So we're just here trying to provide our opinions. I mean, maybe opinions that people otherwise have not been privy to. So Okay, so first line, affirmative action is not equal opportunity. Thoughts? Uh, so there's a lot of thoughts that come to my mind on this, but uh, I think it's like best, you know how they say like a picture can say a thousand words. Um, there's like this picture of a fence where there's three people that are too short to look over it. And, uh, you know, one person's a little taller than the next and the next person's a little taller than that. Um, but if you give each of them just a little bit of bonus, the, the shortest person is never going to be able to see over the fence. And sure, the, the second shortest or the tallest person can now, but shortest person won't. So I think affirmative action is almost like giving the person who's shortest two or three boxes, giving the, the, the middle person two boxes, and then giving the tallest person one box. And I think that just helps everybody get on the same playing field. Everyone can see... Um, Every, and everyone can, uh, you know, participate in the conversations if you take into understanding where they come from, how they grew up, what challenges they faced, and, you know, things that they went through that you might not have gone through. Yeah, I think it's a really interesting statement. One, because I think it's so true. Affirmative action is not equal opportunity. That's the whole point of affirmative action. Like I, I wonder if there was a, if there was that nuanced of an understanding of what that, how that statement comes across to people who are not of the majority. Um, it's almost like you nailed it. 
Dr. Calhoun, you nailed it. You're right. Affirmative action is not equal opportunity. That's the whole point of affirmative action is it's intended to equal the playing field. It's intended to equal the opportunities. So I don't know how that was conceived or even meant to be interpreted, but I, when I read that, I was like, yeah, you're right. You nailed it. Affirmative action is not equal opportunity. So in and of itself, I don't really find fault with that statement, except that I wonder if that's actually how we intended it to be. (laughs) Yeah. (laughs) All right. Second sentence um, or second bullet point. Inclusion, not the same as diversity. Quite honestly, I don't I like I I can't imagine the thought process behind this one because um the the speech that went over these words he uh he didn't quite like relay each of the points one by one per se he very much just talked over it in general um and i like again this statement like by in and of itself makes not much sense to me <laughs> Yeah. So inclusion, not the same as diversity. And I, again, I think it's a totally correct statement. Right. And I don't know if, again, if that was the intention. And so um, I was having a conversation with somebody who's very dear and near to me about this. And the best analogy we could kind of come up with, and again, different context, but I hope it, I hope that it relates to the listener. Um, if you are talking about politics and you include people of all colors, races, religions, but ultimately you're all, let's say Democrat or let's say Republican, or let's say green party. Yes, there's inclusion, but there's not diversity in the point of the group, right? If the point of the group is to align political belief, it doesn't matter what color, religion, race you are, because ultimately the denominator is political belief. So I think that happens a lot. I think inclusion is not the same as diversity. Diversity, in my worldview, is the opportunity to bring people together who have different beliefs, different experiences um, rather than what he goes on to talk about or at least mention later, which is uh, color, gender, and religion. So, yeah, I do. I agree. Again, the second point, if taken in a vacuum, inclusion is not the same as diversity. Perfect. Like, I think that's another very well, well pointed out fact. Um, but again, I don't know if that was the intention. All right. Let's yeah, look at the, so, go ahead. Sorry. Yes. Yeah, so I, I was just going to say like, um, of course, if, if, um, if you look at it the way that you mentioned, then you're absolutely correct, right? Inclusion is not the same as diversity. Diversity is making sure that on uh, whichever point you're like, in whichever point the the topic is that you have, you know, opposing points of view, you have people who, you know, believe different things or people that uh, are from different backgrounds. But um, I think in the sense which it was mentioned, and I think the speech that went along with it, 
it was it was a little hard for me to wrap my mind around what exactly was being said right all right so third bullet point search for the best candidate use all hurdles and challenges overcome you mentioned this earlier so let's dive a little deeper into this search for the best candidate use all hurdles and challenges overcome so like i i agree with this statement actually quite quite literally but um and i'm paraphrasing here a little bit but i think in the uh, i mean in the speech it was it was relayed almost as um people that are in the majority often do not have any of their hurdles accounted for and people that are in the minority have every hurdle accounted for and that kind of creates and this is an absolutely incorrect term but i believe the notion that uh, that was implied was like reverse racism per se um which is not really a thing but uh, i think that was what is being um that was what was trying to be conveyed by the by the bullet point right there and then what um was mentioned yeah and i think you mentioned it earlier you know there are experiences that people of color have and let's just just because that's the easiest kind of thing that most people can relate to that are simply unnoticed you know you mentioned your experience i can tell you you know when i was a trainee um being the person who was uh, who was on the surface not of christian faith um or assumed not to be of christian faith that you know, I've been on call every Christmas as long as I can remember without being asked, right? I've been um, never invited to church where fellow trainees and medical students have been by attendings. Um, and it's not to any discredit to those attendings. I simply think it's a matter of ignorance. It's just, you don't know what you don't know. You have no idea what perspective or impression that minority person may feel from you. And it's it's often things unsaid, right? It's often the gesture not made that the person who's responsible for it has absolutely no idea that they even omitted that gesture. They have no idea that they've always instinctually assumed that I'd be okay working Christmas. Right? I mean, in my 10 years of training in my 10 years of practice, I've been on Christmas every single year. Yeah. Um, I mean, I, I, I mean, like to, to begin, I, I would like to say I'm very sorry. Because <laughs> um, even as someone who doesn't open, like, like religiously per se, celebrate Christmas, like, I think I still enjoy the holiday quite a bit. Like I like Christmas music, like growing up here, like, I, like when I go to the mall and I hear, you know, like jingle bells going on, I'm like, this is great. Like I, it puts me in a good mood. And, um, you know, like just to tie, tie it back all up to the point, sure, like sure. it's things that, um, they don't even realize that, um, are part of our experience too, that they just kind of assume aren't that, that really, um, make the biggest impact. Right. Yeah. And I, I do also think that um, 
it's not quite a two-way street. Like this idea of reversed racism creates this assumption that people in the minority do not appreciate that people in the majority go through obstacles. If anything, people in the minority are much more aware and in attune of what things, what obstacles everybody goes through. You know, whether you're Caucasian, whether you're Christian, whether whatever majority you speak to in that certain circumstance, I can promise you the minority is much more aware of those obstacles, whether it's poverty, whether it's family upbringing, whatever it is. Um, I can promise you minorities are much more aware of those obstacles that everybody goes through than generally those in the majority. Yeah, um, I think one quick point here would be like similar to um, how I think there was a recent, not recent, but like 2015 or 2016 paper that came out that said, you know, 65% of incoming medical students had like a direct or like within one um, family relation of a doctor. And, you know, not to say that, uh, like this, like this is equal to what was um, what we're discussing right now. But you know, they'll never understand like sending out thirty emails to random doctors as an undergraduate or as a high school student, and like praying that one of them gets back to you. Um, there's like that that like that indoor connection, right? And um, as someone who goes through that, you're very well aware that like you know, like in ten years, hopefully, if I get an email in my inbox from someone who's like, hey. Like, I'm just a student and I don't have like any projects to work on. Like, could I come work with you? I'll be hyper aware to be like, yes, yes. Like, no, for sure. Come in. Like, I remember once I was in your shoes too. Um, and then I was going to say another thing, but I totally forgot. No problem. Yeah. And you know, in, in a nerdy sort of way, right? AFib begets AFib. Opportunity begets opportunity. Money begets money. Like, we get that. That's part of the world. Like, if somebody above you is acting as a role model in whatever way, financially, education, religion, social activity, community involvement, whatever, you know, that's fantastic, right? I don't discount that opportunity. I think when when the opportunity is afforded to you, you take complete advantage of it. Like, I think that's just part of the fabric of society. Um, but like you said, unfortunately, Often those opportunities are not afforded to people who are not in the majority. And it may be simply because of the longevity and the history of, of let's say, our profession, right? Minorities are now becoming more prevalent in medical school, in training programs, and subsequently in attending positions. So it may just be a matter of time where the the diversity is more evident or more equal and the opportunities are more equal. I'm hopeful. I'm very optimistic that that will play out that way if given a long enough runway. Um, but I think what kind of struck us all was this almost kind of speed bump in the road. You know, we feel like we're such a progressive or we're on such a progressive wave and then to see something like this is what kind of struck everybody. I think um, another thing, just to tail off what you just said right there, I um, was listening to a presentation given by one of my colleagues the other day, 
And they said that even currently for all the, all the diversity that we champion, African-American students make up less than 2% of the incoming medical student population. Um, I believe they said this was less than the incoming medical student classes in like 1980, which is, you know, diversity, sure, it's occurring, but um, it might not be as good as we like to all give ourselves a pat on the back for per se. Um, but yeah, I think you're right. Like we like to, we like to think that we're on this forward wave and then something like this can really just make us all be like, oh, maybe we all don't agree on the same exact things. Right. Right. Exactly. All right. Let's, let's jump into this fourth point, defining people by color, gender, religion only tends to ingrain bias and discrimination. By whom? that's like when i read that statement i kind of sorry i'm gonna i'm gonna take the lead on this one when i read that statement i said ingrained bias and discrimination by whom by people of color by people of not the major gender by people of not the major religion I don't think so. I find that hard to believe. So who is it ingraining bias and discrimination in? So I was kind no, of, be, this is like the, the, again, this is a statement where if, if we're playing kind of true, false, yes, like right, wrong, correct. This is a true statement, but I wonder who the audience is that's becoming more biased and more discriminatory. Um, so I, I just like, I have a personal anecdote on this and, uh, you know, I really love this, it, not the statement, but, uh, this anecdote, it's that, um, one of the fellows at the medical college of Wisconsin, um, he's not Muslim at all. And I am, and, you know, sometimes like I'll walk into the room and I'll be like, oh, this great thing happened. And I'll be like, mashallah, like, like that just means like good for you. And it's like, it said like the way that my parents would say, it. and although, you know, he's not Muslim. Like it makes me feel good and warm inside. Like I like him so much more for just taking like that one second out to j- like, like he could have said, good job. I would have felt just as great, but um, you know, I, appreciating and understanding kind of like my culture and my lens. And like in those two seconds that it took him to say that it really made me feel like he kind of understood me on a better level. And I think that's just something that, um, that comes with being a person of color. I think it's just like those little things that when people try and understand um, where you come from or like try and fit into your shoes, I think those are really, really like valuable and very, very, you know, like joy inducing moments for us as people of color. Yeah, absolutely. And I think in the statement where it's, it's comes across as defining is, um, is true. We are defined by our color. We are defined by our gender and by our religion. And it's, it's, I don't think people are only defined by that. And maybe that's what this statement is getting at is that defining somebody only by that is incorrect. And I complete, uh, I agree completely, but avoiding it also is completely wrong. Like to say that those sorts of things don't matter in the social experience or the educational experience of people in 
medical school, obviously in, in this conversation or residency in our, in our careers is just ignorant. That's, that's, um, it's an incomplete assessment of an individual if you don't account for these things. And I find it very hard to believe that any admissions panel, any residency panel, any chief or senior partner looking for a new um, attending or partner would ever only define somebody by these characteristics. That's just simply not true. Um, but it is a, they are important attributes to help define a complete picture of what this individual is and their value to the institution. Yeah, 100%. Um, I, again, I'm going to shout out this TED Talk again. Yeah. Um, I watched it in high school. It was like in ninth grade, and then we watched it again in 11th grade. And it stuck with me to this day. Um, it's this person who gives a speech saying, you know, let's not be colorblind, but color brave. And it's just a way to take into account um, that other people come from different backgrounds and they might, you know, have different cultural upbringings and different things that they relate to more. And just taking a second to acknowledge that or, you know, as as I said, like color brave, like he didn't stutter when he said mashallah. And I was like, that's great. Like I, I felt like 10 times happier yeah. because he said that. Um, so I think that's just, I think that Ted talk is something that, uh, a lot of people need to watch. Point number five, diversity is occurring rapidly. So, yeah, as, um, as I said, I was listening to my speech by the, by a colleague the other day, um, African-American medical students are still less than 2% of the incoming class and, you know, their rates, um, you know, are, are less than what they were in like 1980 or I forget the exact year. So don't quote me, but um, it was like a really shocking statistic because I thought, again, we like to put ourselves on these pedestals where we're like, oh, we're doing all the right things. We're making things more diverse, equity, like equitable. Um, we're being inclusionary to everyone. Um, we like to, I think just as like groups of people, we like to give ourselves a little bit too much credit because um, when you sit down and you analyze these things with like a fine lens, um similar to how we would analyze like um like our afib databases um, if we were to like look at the little details we'd realize mm, potentially we're not doing as well as we thought um yeah it would it would be like if you know someone said you know this thing works this drug works really great to cure afib it's like 99% successful and then you went and looked at his patients and it was you know 99% successful for one week and then after that it was like, you know, like a 50% success rate at best. And then people were like, oh, it's 99%, 99%. Like you got to look at it with that, that strict lens that I know everyone has because everyone loves to, you know, read journals and articles and they like to like point out the things that they're like, oh, this is, you know, something that I think that they're leaving out or this is something that this could be improved on. Or and we all have that critical thinking understanding. Um, I think we just apply it in uh, certain scenarios that we're more used to applying it to. Like when we read an article or when we read um, something, we're really used to looking at the very nitty gritty details. But uh, when it comes to saying things that potentially don't impact us directly, we like to just give ourselves a good old pat on the back. Like, ah, we're doing great. Absolutely yeah. amazing. Right, right. Yeah, something I kind of um, think of an analogy with this statement, diversity is occurring rapidly, is if you take a bucket of water, 
and you put a single drop of food coloring in it, let's say red, the whole thing looks like Kool-Aid now, right? But don't be mistaken, it's still all water. There's a tiny, tiny part that's now red. And I think that's what's going on. We have this bucket of homogenation in our field. And as soon as there's a single drop of color in it, everyone's like, whoa, look at all this diversity. Now the whole bucket is red. Like, can you believe how much diversity we have? I mean, every time we go to M&M now, there's a person of color. There's a non-Christian. There's a someone who came from poverty. There's someone whose parents weren't physicians. Like, pick your pick your attribute, whatever, you know? Um and I think that's what's happening is that when you sit in a conference room and your foundation, your perspective has always been this perfectly clear bucket of water. And now all of a sudden you drop in one little drop of minority in it and you see it all the time and it becomes very obvious all the time that all of a sudden you think diversity is occurring rapidly. That's kind of my analogy. That's the only way I can even kind of reconcile where this sort of perspective comes from, because it's not in the data, right? The data don't express that all of a sudden we're this, you know, super diverse workforce and that access to healthcare is improving because we're a diverse uh, workforce. That just isn't true. So that's my only kind of way to reconcile this sort of perspective. I think I'm going to have a nerdy little tie into step one. Uh, recency <laughs> bias um, is something that, you know, we're told to analyze. And I think that's what's kind of happening in these, when people make these statements is they're seeing, you know, in their past experiences, like, oh yeah, there's like, as you said, like at a conference room, they're like this one person that they're like, oh, like this one drop of, you know, red color in this big old bucket of clear water and, uh, you know, the recency bias is saying, oh, look, it's all red now. Like, there's so much red to go around when you don't realize that, like, if you look at the real data, the real numbers, it doesn't look, you know, as, as you, as, 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 you know, as red as people would like to believe if we keep using that analogy. Right, right. Yeah. And again, to kind of something that we went back to, because um, I, this is not to discredit or discount any of the people in that homogenized bucket. That's just how it's been. That's just, it's just a, a, a fact of nature, a fact of our practice. This has been the majority population. This has been how our training programs have been. Um, and so it would be just foolish of me and naive of me to think that our bucket wouldn't otherwise be homogenous, but statements like this that don't really capture the truth of diversity are, is what bothers me. God knows most of my friends are of the majority, right? Just play the numbers. The odds are most of our colleagues, most of our friends, most of the people we respect, we look up to our role models, um, people that we trust our family members with, with their health care are of the majority. This is not a personal attack on anybody. This is more of a interpretation of the um, current state of statements like this. Yeah. Um, I just want to say really quickly, um, I remember in college, we had like a discussion regarding how 
sometimes when we talk about these things in um, an open space, people, the majority feel like they're being attacked for um, not being so inclusive per se or, or things of that nature. What, what we're trying to say as people of color, and again, I don't pretend to be you know, the world's leading expert on this. What we're just trying to say is that um, we're not attacking you know, the majority by any means. We're simply stating that right now there's not enough minority in this group. Um, there's not enough of us here for um, it to be diverse per se. Um, and it's it's not an attack by any means. It's just simply stating, you know, there could be more of us here. There could be, you know, more of, you know, African-American people in cardiothoracic surgery or um, Latino people in cardiothoracic surgery. And, you know, all these things could benefit us as, as you know, a group. So it, it's not it's not an attack by any means. So I hope that no one takes it that way. Right. Right. Exactly. So let's jump into this last point here. Um, shoot, it just got closed. There we go. Okay. Best metric is simply whether someone does good. The best metric is simply whether someone does good. I think that's correct up until some point. Um, and I think by saying this, I mean, is the implication in the air that people that are um, of like people of color and minority groups don't do as good as people in the majority? I think that's what's being implied by this statement, but I don't think that's true at all. Um, I like, again, some of these, like, at least to me, it's a little bit hard to fully verbalize how I feel about this specific statement, but I think that's the implication here is that people in the minority are often not as good as people in the majority. And that might, that is definitely not true. Yeah. I think it's such a subjective statement, you know, like what is good? What is, is it speaking to strictly surgical outcomes, your ability to throw a stitch, your ability to round on a patient like what is good? How do we define good? Um, talk to people from all over the world. People define good different. People in different religions define good different. The right or wrong, good or bad. Um, so, just such a nebulous statement. You know, simply whether someone does good, and then to just speak about it within our own field, there is a incalculable. Um, significance to the relationship that you're able to build with somebody who's of like likeness, if you will, you know, um, and sometimes it matters. Sometimes it doesn't matter at all, right? Sometimes you talk with a the patient, they don't care if you're red, yellow, green, brown, purple, everyone's open-minded, everyone's talking, everyone gets along. It doesn't affect the patient outcome at all. Zero zilch. But we've all experienced that there are patients where it does matter. There are circumstances where cultural differences make a huge difference, where being of the same likeness creates an inherent bond, whether you agree or disagree, 
there is a bond that's formed that engenders a certain amount of trust and that ultimately that allows for possibly an improved patient experience and patient outcome. And to, to not have a population of providers that reflects the population in which we live doesn't foster those sorts of relationships. And so to say that the best metric is simply whether someone does good just really doesn't account for the nuance that we as human beings have and we as providers need to connect with our patients. No, I 100% agree. Um, I, I'm starting to see the the experience that comes with being an attending because uh, I feel like your thoughts are so much better put together <laughs> than the ones that I'm able to come up with here. But yeah, no, 100%. I think it really does take a lot to um, understand like everything that goes into being a good you know, surgeon, a good healthcare provider. It's complex. So yeah, very, a, a very overarching statement that doesn't, doesn't really capture the essence of it, I guess. Yeah, absolutely. And just shared experiences ultimately make relationships more meaningful. And it's not to say that two people of the same color, religion, race, always have the same experiences. There's diversity within every color or religion. Um, but the more of that, that we can foster, the better I think we will all be as a society in uh, improving our healthcare. Simply that. The more we're able to create bridges with our patients and create bridges of trust because of shared experiences, different, you know, shared backgrounds, shared religions, shared race, um, that is going to allow us to build a better healthcare system. Absolutely. A hundred percent. Amen to that is, uh, <laughs> is what I would say. <laughs> right on. Well, Ali, it's been an absolute pleasure. I know you're, you're busy as a second year medical student, um, slamming through texts, pretending how to take care of patients. I love it. I know what it's all about. Uh, you know, what, what a great time um, to be uh, in school right now, just ever-changing, dynamic, complex. Um, and I, I really appreciate your courage in um, the actions you've taken, both on social media and, and now to be published in the Annals of Thoracic Surgery. And having the courage to come on a podcast. Um, as you know, this will exist in the public domain, and I'm hoping intentionally, I'm hoping that this conversation reaches some people in the AFib space that may not otherwise typically listen to a conversation like this because it otherwise would not typically exist in their echo chamber, if you will. I hope there's a diverse uh, audience that um, has the tolerance and the open-mindedness to listen to a conversation about our perspectives um, on this STS presidential address. So thank you for your time. Thank you for coming on. I'll uh, I'll let you finish with any last thoughts, and then we'll call it a I'll call, I'll call it a podcast. 
Yeah, no. Um, thank you so much for having me, Dr. Kankui. Um, it's it's really, really an honor. I mean, because like again, as I said um, before we started recording, like I've read like a lot of your convergent papers, and um, you know, to think that like you know, as you said, like the people you idolize, um, and uh, like it really is an honor to be on the podcast with you. And uh, I really hope that people who are in the AFib space would, uh, you know, hear this and would understand that uh, first and foremost, it's no attack against people in the majority. It's simply just our understanding and our experience as people that are in minority groups and as people of color. And um, I'm really happy to have talked with you on this. And I'm really happy that um, the Annals of Thoracic had um, the the understanding to to realize that uh potential that that what was said at that speech is not something they stood for and that um the new president has you know made strides in talking about exactly how they're going to increase diversity equity and inclusion and um i think by i think by um moving forward with what they're going to do uh, I hope to see, you know, some reaffirmation of the fact that diversity, equity, inclusion is something that's important to the STS and to cardiothoracic surgery as a field. Great, great. So those are some great summarizing statements and some opportunities moving forward. So again, Ali, thank you for the, for the time today and uh, good luck with school. Thank you. Thank you so much. All right. Well, thanks again for listening to another episode of the All Things AFib podcast. I hope you enjoyed this episode. Remember, you can catch more content at our website, allthingsafib.com, and check out our Twitter feed, at allthingsafib. So thanks again for listening, and until next time, stay regular, my friends. And now time for the obligatory disclaimer. All content on allthingsafib.com, including podcasts and blog conversations, are meant for informational purposes only and is not intended as medical care and no doctor-patient relationship is formed. If you have a medical condition, you should seek out a medical professional for consultation. Any use of information from allthingsafib.com or its associated content is at the user's own risk.